warm welcome to You Being Framed. Good morning and welcome to episode 205 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus. I am Ben Lindbergh with Sam Miller. Uh, normally we do the email show on Wednesday, but we mentioned this past Wednesday that we had so many good emails that we might do two this week, uh, just to kind of clear out the, the backlog a little bit. And we have decided to go through with that plan. So we have we've collected a bunch of emails from the last, I guess, the week or, or maybe even longer back, uh, and we're going to get to them now. So there were a couple about catcher framing, uh, which is something that we've we've talked about at least a few times on the show. Um, I wrote a thing for Grantland this week about catcher framing, and that seems to have inspired uh, a couple of questions. So the first one is from Andy. Uh, he said, Ben, I recently read your piece for Grantland about pitch framing, and it makes a lot of sense. As a pitcher myself, nothing makes me happier than when a catcher steals a strike for me. But with the recent discussion about how bad umps have been and that there needs to be something done, there have been talks about robot umpires and with that an automatic strike zone. My question for you is, if baseball were to institute an automatic strike zone, would the quest for a good pitch framer become worthless as there is no pitch that can be stolen? And the answer is, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I guess so. Um, yeah, pretty pretty obviously, right? I yeah. mean, the entire premise but can i ask you a spin-off question real quick though sure somebody mentioned in uh i want to say the comments of one of your pieces uh that uh you might be able to fill me in on this but the 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 hypothesis that um robot umps would help either hitters or pitchers mm. because either hitters or pitchers are currently more worried about either getting or losing strike calls due to umpire error. Uh And I don't know if you know this, but you've looked at catcher framing um, more than most people alive. Um, Not all, but but more than the average. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have a sense of who benefits from umpire error more? Uh, uh, So I'm not sure. I've heard uh, informed people, I I guess, express uh, both points of view. Um, there are people who think that it would be a boon to batters and, and others who think it would benefit pitchers. I mean, talking to people about framing specifically, the, the consensus uh, among catchers and, and coaches seems to be that that receiving skills are more about not losing strike calls than they are about gaining strike calls uh, outside the zone. So... I guess, I, I don't know, in, in that sense, I mean, I guess you benefit more from from a good framer maybe uh, just from not not losing strikes and you wouldn't be losing strikes anyway if the zone were, were standardized uh, and called by some sort of robot. So I don't know exactly what effect that would have. Um, I mean, there are so many, so many unintended consequences i think of the robot umpire idea and it's probably a, a pretty sound idea on the whole uh, not the least of which is the robot revolution that will end us all right of course um i would i would certainly miss the the framing skill like i i, I asked russell martin this question like i mean what would it mean for for catchers if if there were robot umpires uh and he 
sounded sort of sad about that idea. I mean, he, he thinks it's kind of an art. Uh, it is something that he has dedicated many, many hours to becoming good at. Um, and so it would change things completely if if suddenly that were just not a factor at all, if, if all a catcher really had to do was literally catch the ball one way or another uh, and just prevent it from going to the backstop but but not have to make it look a certain way, that would... That would change a lot, I guess. I don't know. Maybe you would start to see better hitting catchers uh, because they just wouldn't have as much of a, a defensive burden. Um, so that could happen. I don't know what it would what it would do to, to offense, but I, I did kind of at the end of my Grantland piece, I kind of got into that a little bit and, and talked about. Uh, you know how I, I would sort of be sorry to to see framing go at this point now that I've become aware of it and become interested in it, and uh, and and I, I mean I don't know it's uh it's interesting to think about and I, I think if there is no no robot umpire imminently uh, one of the things I kind of speculated about was that framing might just kind of bring an end to itself uh, in that the more attention is paid to to how much impact this can have on a game, um, the more people will, I guess, be upset about umpires, uh, and there will be even more of a, a groundswell of support for, for taking pitch calling out of the umpire's hand. Plus, if, if teams just devote all their resources or devote more resources to having catchers who can receive the ball properly, then... I mean, imagine if every team had not necessarily a, a Jose Molina, but someone who was, say, above average in the, the current landscape. Um, suddenly, I mean, what would that do to, to strikeout rates, which are climbing already uh, and are already too high for some people's taste? If you had a good framer on every team, then that would kind of get out of control. So I, I feel like one way or another, uh, maybe the clock is kind of ticking, whether it's that the attention paid to this is going to hasten the arrival of some sort of standard edge strike zone or uh, that it will just change the game in, in certain ways that will force Major League Baseball to think about changing a rule of some sort. Yeah. Thoughts? Hi. Yeah, no. Okay. I, I asked because I, asked I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, so the other, the other framing related question is from Danny. Uh, he says, good evening, gentlemen, Jason Parks mentioned on this week's fringe average podcast that he could see teams investing more in their catching prospects, focusing more on their game calling and pitch receiving slash framing skills. If you were a GM, would you make this a higher priority than developing plus hitters plus hitting catchers? Also, what is the average salary of a roving minor league catching coordinator? And how much above average would you, particularly Ben, offer Jose Molina to be your coordinator when his playing days are over? Uh, so this is interesting, I guess. I I did talk to a, a, a few catching coordinators for that article, and I did not ask them how much money they make. Um, maybe I should have asked them how much money they make as the, the last question of my interview, in case it, it offended them. Um, I would guess. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna Google real quick. So sorry, okay. to everybody. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would guess it's it's not a a, a very large amount. Um, 
I do think that that teams will be investing more in in this particular skill. And that was kind of one of the things I talked about, that the, the Yankees seem to be very focused on this. Brian Cashman said that they're big into framing the other day on the radio. And, and of course, they went into the season with Francisco Cervelli and Chris Stewart, who are known more for their defensive skills than their bats. Uh, and then I talked to a bunch of people with the Astros, particularly uh, Mark Bailey, who's kind of the, the Astros catching coordinator. And and he told me how Mike Fast, the former BP offer, and and other members of the the Astros front office had sent him all these studies and stats, and and showed him the video of good framers next to to bad framers, and how he was just kind of completely converted. Uh, that in the past he had he had sort of considered a catcher's arm strength before anything else, but that now he was reevaluating that, and and really had just kind of uh, become convinced that this is as important as the the stats and the studies say it is, and that he is just right now kind of coming up with ways to implement that and, and try to churn out a, a wave of, of catchers who are good at this. And I don't know that, that every team is doing something like that, but I, I think that is probably the way things are, are headed, certainly. Well, I'm going to give a quick um, uh, counter-argument which is that I asked um, the Angels about this, mm. and uh, they told me that that uh, this has just been standard practice for them for uh, you know for a decade or more. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Mike Sosha said that um, this was standard practice for the Dodgers when he was coming up through the system. Um, and uh, you know, catcher framing was a was a huge part of what they worked on and what they were instructed in. Um, and so, like every Angels catcher who's come up for the last decade, has been drilled on this since uh, you know from 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 rookie ball on. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you know, as we all know, catcher defense is a priority for playing time in the Angels organization. Um, and yet. Um, the Angels catchers don't fare particularly well. That I mean, some are some are okay, some are worse. Uh, you know, Mathis was 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 plus, and Napoli was negative. But um, Ionetta is negative. Yeah, I, I mean, and I mean, Ionetta is imported, so you might mm-hmm. um, exempt him. But um, it's not as though uh, working on these guys from the crib, uh, so to speak, um, turned them into Jose Molinas. Mm-hmm. And it, I, my guess is that. Uh, Jose Molina, uh, well, he certainly has, he certainly, I would say, has a lot more value in the framing he actually does than in any framing that he would be able to teach. Uh, and my guess is that the difference between Molina and, uh, you know, any other catching coordinator who made this a priority, uh, or a catching coordinator who didn't make it a priority would be fairly limited. My, my, my hunch is that, uh, maybe, you know, the rare outlier like Molina excluded, uh, this is more of a uh, trait that you're born with that um, maybe improves as you age, um, but that, like most things in baseball, is extremely difficult to, to really teach at an impact level at this high of a level. And um, incidentally, also, Sosha says that Molina's own origin story about uh, what was it, the Yankees in 2009 or, or whatever. Yeah, he, um, he said Tony Pena worked with him in 2008 and, and made him yeah. better. Yeah, so there you go. So, I mean, quite possibly he did 
but Socha says that um, that Molina was a great framer mm-hmm. when he was with the Angels, and uh, you know that he 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 started from a very high point, even even if he did take a leap forward, mm-hmm. and, which is perhaps true or not. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I have no idea whether Jose Molina wants to be a catching coordinator, but uh, I, I well, have. Who doesn't? Who wouldn't? I, yeah, right. I have read some stories about him kind of tutoring other catchers. I read something about him working with with the Rays catchers just the other day. So, so maybe, uh, but that's not necessarily a, a guarantee. That I mean, the fact that he is so good at this doesn't mean that he will be able to teach the skill effectively. Um, Obviously, good good hitters do not automatically become good hitting coaches. So, there's no reason to believe that that he would necessarily be a, a great catching coordinator. If he if he were, I guess that would be worth something, um, but not not a, a vast sum, I guess. Uh, but you're right. I, I mean, it's it's certainly it's a skill that has always been valued it, it's not as if it has just suddenly dawned on a bunch of baseball men that it matters how you catch the ball they have always been aware of that but um it does seem that with at least with the teams that are a little more into the numbers uh the fact that the numbers are so big just makes it more of an emphasis or, or harder to dismiss i guess um certainly Socha seems to have been putting an emphasis on this before anyone else was on the internet when we were all making fun of him for starting Mathis over Napoli. Uh, he knew something we didn't clearly. So that's framing. Uh, and I think the reason that I like talking about this so much and writing about it and the reason people ask so many questions about it, I feel like is that it's, it's just kind of like at the sweet spot where it's, it's kind of like at the cutting edge of baseball analysis, and yet uh, we are kind of almost as capable of analyzing it in the, the public sphere as people inside the game are, uh, which is true of, of very, very few things now, I think. Um, there, there are very, very few areas that are kind of still being worked on and where there's still stuff to learn, and yet we are just about as capable of learning those things and studying those things as someone who is inside the game. Um, so that, that sort of sets it apart. And it's also something that you can talk to old school people about, and you can talk to new school people about and get all kinds of interesting perspectives. So that is why I, I keep coming back to it, uh, week after week, I suppose. Um, I think the thing that's, I think the thing that's great about catcher framing as a discussion topic is that the entire act, every every relevant detail, is before you on it, it on your TV. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't you don't you're not at the mercy of of, of camera operators. Uh, you you don't miss the split second where the the key thing is done, like mm-hmm. you would for you know a shortstop breaking for a ball or whatever. Uh, the, it's just it's right there. It's like completely self-contained. It's like uh, you know like uh, it's it, it's almost like uh, in a way. Uh, trying to to watch a shortstop play defense is like playing some super complicated video game and then mm-hmm. watching catcher framing is just like um like one of those two button flash games that right. are like 10 times more addictive uh-huh. and that take away your entire day mm-hmm. uh so this is just this wonderful two button game it's so simple <laughs> right uh okay next question comes from eric hartman he says i have a th- I- sorry i believe it's it's actually it's pronounced airy 
uh, Chartman. His last name, I believe, is Chartman. That is not true. It's Ari Chartman. I don't believe that. Uh, uh-huh. In Brooklyn, New Pretty York. Sure. Uh, he has, he says, I have a hypothetical question for you guys. Would there be room on a MLB roster for a pitcher who could only throw one inning every five days, but is guaranteed to never give up a run? Yeah. So, um, I mean, first of all, as you noted, having, I think you had just written about, was it Guillermo Quiroz? Yes. Uh, you had just written about the Giants third string catcher. You noted that if the Giants can carry a third catcher, then they could certainly find room for a pitcher right, who never who gets a run. basically never, never plays. But this question is interesting because, um, for one thing, I, I think that um, there are two details. Well, I guess it, it's uh, one detail that we need to actually know, which is, does Eric mean this this pitcher can can only throw one inning every five days, but it's it's the exact same fifth day, like just like you know a starting pitcher pitches every fifth day, or can he pitch... Uh, once in every five game span or can he pitch um, like could he and and what are the five game spans is it that he can never pitch once he pitches one inning he's done for four more days or is it that like between games one to five of the week he can you know pitch uh, of the season he can pitch one game and between games six and ten he can pitch one game so he could theoretically pitch back-to-back days because I took it to mean that he cannot pitch back-to-back days that when he pitches he is he is shut down for the next four or whatever so then theoretically he might go nine or ten days i mean the the interesting element of this i i think is really trying to figure out how how well how well you could actually or how properly you could actually leverage him mm-hmm. i don't know if you remember because it was a very forgettable piece but i did i did a, a piece last summer about uh how 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 well you could actually leverage Billy Hamilton as a yeah. stolen base only threat? Like if you committed to using him uh, uh, in um, only as a base runner, only as a pinch runner, but you um, you could use him every day once. Basically, mm-hmm. how well could you do it, and how many runs could it be? And it's actually not that easy to properly leverage a guy, even if you know he's going to be safe on every stolen base, because you don't know whether the situation in the fifth is as tense as it's going to get or whether to hold on. And so then maybe you don't use them in that inning in the fifth or that opportunity in the fifth, and, and then the game gets out of hand and there's never a leverage situation. So you end up wasting all kinds of opportunities. And and if you compare how much value you get out of him um, based on what you know at the time versus what you would have done if you had known everything or if you were making the decision after the game and could go back and do it retroactively. It's actually like a, as I recall, it was a pretty big difference. Um, and so this guy who can only throw one inning, but never gets up a run is extremely valuable. If you're, um, omniscient. Right. Um, and so it seems like you, like you feel going into this exercise, you think, I would I would find highly leveraged opportunities to use this guy, and it would be a pretty awesome thing to have and a big deal. But I think what you would end up doing is like wasting him sometimes and missing chances to use him sometimes. Yeah, so, well, you'd always be reluctant to use him. You would. I mean, because you've got five days, right? right? <laughs> you want to save him for the most, because yeah. you can always imagine another situation in the next five days is going to come around. Mm-hmm. But but then if you wait and that next situation doesn't come for four days. Well, now you've burnt, you've started the clock so much later. So, mm-hmm. 
it, using this guy would almost be more hassle than it's worth. I mean, you would you would almost I, I well, you would I don't know if you would probably a competent manager wouldn't, but I personally, as a person who would get obsessed with the uh, uh, you know kind of academic value of this <laughs> exercise, would think of nothing else. Right. <laughs> uh, I would be single-mindedly focused on the odds of of whether I'm using this guy correctly, and that. Uh, I would look up and I would see my starting pitcher batting for himself in the 11th inning. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but so, I mean, I think that there is room for this guy, but it's not the slam dunk that I initially thought it would be. Yeah. I, I think how many, how many innings do you think this guy, right, how many that's innings the other thing. I mean, I mean with the typical lefty specialist, like a super lefty specialist, like a, a Joe Patterson or a Randy Chode or something, probably doesn't pitch more than one inning every five days right uh well yeah i mean, I mean uh, he can he can pitch back-to-back days or whatever an but extreme yeah an extreme lefty specialist will, will probably throw 40 40 innings a year like a if like that, a, yeah, right. a larusa lugi would probably go between 35 and, and 45 innings mm-hmm. a year and so this guy would be going 30 32 or 33 if you used him uh every five days. yeah on the dot i mean more likely you probably would get like 26 27 innings out of him yeah uh, which would is also close not allow to, any runs in that time. He would never allow a run. I mean, it's tempting. It's tempting. I think there's room for this guy, but I'm not sure that I would be as excited that he fell into my lap uh, as maybe I want to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I, I would think it's not guy? an optimal usage of a roster spot, but I would think that in today's game with giant bullpens already, I would think think the temptation would be too much and that he would get a job somewhere mm-hmm. what would you pay him uh well i mean i'm i'm barely willing to give him a roster spot so i i guess i i wouldn't want to pay him much more than than the minimum really well i'm i'm certainly willing to give him a roster spot uh i have i have no qualms about the roster spot i would probably give him i'd give him two and a quarter Hmm. Million dollars. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I might. I might even go higher. Than huh. that. I mean, if you, I would. I imagine that. Uh, I imagine. I, gosh, thirty scoreless innings is is probably. Uh, I I don't know how to do this math, but thirty scoreless innings is probably, um, like a win to a win and a half, in warp. Yeah, I guess I will. Well, I, I don't know how many how many scoreless innings does an average pitcher have in thirty innings? Oh, well, okay. So so replacement level is what is replaced five an ERA of five or so. For so, for a reliever, uh, I guess it might be lower. Okay, so let's say it's let's say it's four point four. So over the course of thirty innings, a replacement level pitcher would give up like um like fourteen or fifteen runs. So a, a pitcher with zero runs would give up would would be worth about a win and a half. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Um, but there's there's an opportunity cost, I guess, to carrying him on your roster. Yeah, but there's an opportunity cost to carrying everybody on your roster. I mean, it's, that's what warp. I mean, warp includes that basically, right? I mean, yeah, but you have this guy, then you also have to. I mean, you have to make up the innings somewhere. Yeah, that he somewhere. is not pitching, and then you either need to tax your other relievers more, or you need to 
get replacement level innings for those innings. So that eats yeah. into the value, I guess. I guess, yeah. I mean, you're replacing the last guy in your bullpen who is probably actually genuinely replacement level. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're shifting that guy's mop-up innings onto the second-to-last guy who's now not a, you know, there is a, you are unfortunately pushing everybody in your bullpen down into a little bit more garbage time. So there is a, in a way, there's like a sort of a reverse cascade effect, right? Yeah. But I don't know that I would be too worried about that. I mean, people, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'd do it. No problem. I'd give them. I'm now up to. I'd give him. I'd give him five million. <laughs> wow. Um, all right. I guess is. Well, okay. I, I guess I could. I could go along with something like that. Just kind of given the current relief landscape, I suppose, which seems seems already sort of inefficient. Um, and I guess if if that's the way things are, then this guy has some value. I wish he. I wish he existed uh, because. Yeah, I'd probably just write about him constantly. Well, he probably does exist. I mean, it, well, it, I guess in a sense, like Justin Verlander uh-huh. could probably be this guy. <laughs> it, it, it would be a totally wasted opportunity. So yeah, no. So he doesn't exist in in a way that you would use him that way. So mm. I also wish that he existed. I wish every weird freakish thing you can think of existed. <laughs> okay, uh, this question is from Wes. Uh, he says, why is it that teams don't more liberal, more liberally use MRIs on their pitchers? For instance, why are we stuck wondering if Strasburg has an injury? If I were a GM slash manager and a pitcher showed diminished velocity or mechanical change, uh, for instance, Roy Halladay, I'd get an MRI done immediately, not wait for him to finally reveal after weeks of ineffectiveness or an injury that he's been hurting or compensating. To take it a step further, what's to stop teams from giving their pitchers MRIs after every outing and comparing them to preseason baselines? With so little science behind innings limits, why not use MRIs as part of the post-start process to determine if a rehabbing pitcher needs to be constrained or shut down? So this is sort of like the the preventative appendectomy topic that we talked about a couple weeks ago. basically just going out of your way to to prevent injuries uh, more so than teams do currently and last time we just we just kind of said whatever we thought this time we uh contacted Corey dawkins the the bp injury guy who we had on the show a couple weeks ago to, to talk about chad billingsley's injury uh so i sent him the question and he sent me an answer and i'm gonna read the answer because uh, i think the answer makes sense So Corey says, uh, there are several factors, I believe. First is that plain MRIs are often not sensitive enough to pick up the chronic conditions that end with pitcher surgeries. For instance, in most cases, a plain MRI won't pick up a chronic injury to the ligament responsible for Tommy John surgeries. The rotator cuff and labrum also show some changes as well. In order to get the most accurate picture, an invasive MR arthrogram would have to be performed where a special dye is injected into the joint. This would require at least a few days rest, possibly up to a week or more afterwards. No team is going to shut down a player for that length of time without any reason. Also, what shows up on the MRI may not be what is causing the symptoms. With professional pitchers, there are always something that shows up on MRI that doesn't cause the symptoms. Third, purely my opinion only, is psychological. 
Most players, I believe, wouldn't want that level of detail because it might affect how they approach the game, especially if there's no baseline for it. Is it normal to have some swelling in the rotator cuff immediately after the game? Same goes for the elbow or any other body part. In this respect, it is a bit of a catch-22 because unless you know what is normal, you don't know what's abnormal. Uh, so that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Um, I guess MRIs also cost some money. So if you were doing that for every pitcher after every game, that would be an expense. So there's also that. Yeah, I guess the the one perhaps possibility for this idea would be uh, almost like an exit interview at the end of every season. If mm -hmm. you sent a pitcher out to do this, you wouldn't worry about uh, shutting him down because he's already shut down for the next five months and it might uh, it might be useful, especially because, um, you know, a lot of times guys like Johnny Venters, is an example, shows up to camp and uh, has this elbow soreness. And now they, you know, they lose two months doing the rehab thing with him. And, you know, rehab, when you try to rehab a, a sprained ligament in your elbow, it basically seems to never work. So they're waiting, you know, they're wasting two months on this rehab. They're going to end up doing Tommy John anyway, but let's say they don't. Either way, it'd be nice to have been able to do that rehab during the off season. And it's, I don't know if it would show up in this MR arthrogram, which I've never heard of and which is fascinating. Um, but if that's the sort of thing that you could theoretically find with a kind of with preventative diagnostics, uh, it might still make sense at the end of the season just before everybody leaves to go home. Uh, maybe. I don't know. Maybe we should ask Corey. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are we done? Yeah, I'm done. That was a great question, by the way. And, and a yeah, very, very good question. question. Oh, good, good question, good answer. They should, Corey should do a podcast. <laughs> with, with Wes. It should just be a question where sure. Wes sends Corey questions. Yeah, yeah, it could be. All right. Uh, we're done. You can send us more questions at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We will be back on Monday. Have a nice weekend.